0: Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. Twenty percent of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly well With All.
1: Under the radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, Barnstable rejects a sheriff's pursuit for a stronger bond between police and ICE. New Hampshire Republicans want to levy a poll tax on students in the Granite State. And a local Rhode Island show goes national. It's our regional roundtable. Later in the show, the age-old question, what would you do with the rest of your life if you knew when you would die? That's the premise which frames a critically praised new novel, an engrossing family saga described as a moving meditation on fate, faith, and the family.
3: Knowledge can be a double-edged sword. You know, is it something that's liberating and it allows you to pursue your wildest dreams or is it constricting you in your ability to live freely? Chloe
1: Benjamin is the author of *The Immortalists*. It's our January selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. But first, it's our regional roundtable. Joining us from Rhode Island, Philip Isle, freelance journalist based in Providence, Rhode Island. Hi, Philip. Hi, Kelly. Joining us from Cape Cod, Paul Pronovo, editor of the Cape Cod Times. Welcome, Paul. Hello, Kelly. And joining us from New Hampshire, Arnie Arneson, host of WNHN's The Attitude with Arnie Arneson. Hello, Arnie. It's a pleasure. Well, it's always a pleasure to have all three of you with me. I'm going to start with you, Paul. This just happened, the Barnstable County Assembly of Delegates voting, and this has been a long and emotional debate, as your story says, about federal immigration policy and the response of local police officials. So talk about it.
2: Well, first of all, I think the headline could be much ado about nothing because there was a lot of discussion and then decision, but with zero authority to change anything. But I do think it speaks sort of to the national debate over immigration enforcement policy. And it begins here on Cape Cod with the local sheriff, Jim Cummings, who signed up for the uh, 287G program, which is essentially an agreement with local law enforcement officials to say, if we pick someone up and they uh, are not here legally in the country, we can help begin the process of getting them out of the country. Of course, this has been a debate for a long time, and and in particular over the past year or so, so emotions and tensions go high when, when these subjects come up. So the sheriff went forward with this program, and the county, which here on the Cape, interestingly enough, we have a very vibrant county government. We have both a legislative branch and an executive branch. The county commission, which is the executive branch, a three-member executive branch, voted to support the sheriff in their endeavor. The assembly of delegates, which is their legislative branch, had a motion made by the provincetown delegate to oppose this. And through two hearings and much debate, hours of debate, and in fact in the first hearing, the debate became so emotional that the uh, assembly chairwoman adjourned the meeting. She said, that's it, we're not talking anymore, and ended it. They resumed the meeting again. The sheriff came and spoke. And this time there was probably a split of, of folks who were both for and against The sheriff participating in this program, of course, the sheriff pointed out, and I think trying to head off a little bit of misinformation, that his deputies would not be out patrolling, looking for illegal immigrants, but instead, people who were already in his jail, that's when a screening process would begin. So basically, they would have already been arrested for something else. That assuaged some people. Others still felt that that would not be the business of local law enforcement. So uh, Ultimately, the, uh, the motion by the Provincetown Delegate Dr. Brian O'Malley was rejected, but again, a lot of discussion was made, a lot of voices were heard, and at the end of the day, regardless of the decision, the county has no authority over the sheriff, so they couldn't tell him to do something or not do something regardless.
1: Well, I think that maybe people wanted an opportunity to express themselves on the issue. And from the sheriff's perspective, maybe now he has a sense of, you know, where people are in their response to it, which I think may be valuable for him as he goes forward either politically or not with this. So that's the first thing I would say. The second thing I wonder, Arnie, is what was driving a lot of the emotion, even though there is nothing that can legally be changed, is that people are looking around very close to them and seeing folks who are getting picked up not for criminal activity. And then it goes into a whole other thing. ICE has reprioritized who they will bring in. So the good hombres that President Trump said would not have anything to fear, in fact, do have something to fear. Well, this is clearly, as you said,
0: this was something about nothing, but it wasn't about nothing. It was about the sense of the community. And I think, again, as the sheriff was saying is, well, it's once they're booked. It's only after they brought in. Then the question becomes, how do you decide who you're going to sort of finger? I mean, this person is kind of dark and swarthy and driving 10 miles over the speed limit. And this person is blonde and blue eyed and going 12 miles over the speed limit. Let's stop the 10-mile-an-hour guy. And then once you get them in, then you have, oh, well, you've booked them, you know, or you've, the person has done something wrong. And then you have the excuse of saying, okay, now we're going to find out whether they're illegal or illegal. And I think that's what the fear is. The fear is, is that ev- every cop... Exercises discretion, you know that, and I know that. And then the problem becomes: What are we suggesting here that people need to sort of fear that even though they may have done something slightly wrong or they've done something wrong, we kind of know where the enforcement effort ends up becoming? And I guess here's my question to you, Paul. So you said that you know they have a strong county government, that the executive committee said yes, then the legislative body ultimately you know divided up and said no, or no, they said they 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 basically yeah. gave the sheriff the authority. So who has the authority over the sheriff. Is the sheriff basically the only one that gets to make this decision? So if ICE calls him, the sheriff says, yeah, sure, why not? Or the sheriff says, no, I don't want to do this. So who actually has any kind of a check over the sheriff? Or once he's elected, he's kind of created his own fiefdom.
2: Right. Well, it's interestingly enough, over time in Massachusetts, who the sheriff reports to, I guess, has changed. It used to be directly to the county governments. But as many county governments folded their tents, the structure uh, was changed, and now sheriffs report up through state government. So that's who would be responsible. So the Department of Justice in Massachusetts. But interestingly, Sheriff Cummings had to proactively apply for this program. You're not just designated by ICE. So they had to go out and seek this designation to assist. And so while, yes, exactly as we keep talking about, the county government really didn't have any say over it directly. I think people wanted to say, well, who are we as a community? And, exactly. and we know that a lot of, exactly. quote-unquote, sanctuary cities have popped up, you know, governments from Boston San Francisco saying we will not assist in this sort of program. And so mm-hmm. I think that's what really caught people's attention here on the Cape because, frankly, of Massachusetts, is one of the more conservative areas. Sheriff Cummings is a Republican. The district attorney is a Republican. We have uh, several Republican representatives. But, of course, being Massachusetts and being certain pockets of the Cape in general, there's a lot of liberal persuasion, and people were not happy to be associated with a program that's assisting ICE.
1: Philip, uh, last comment?
2: Yeah,
4: I was just going to pick up on that. I mean, I think we forget Donald Trump has been controversial on so many issues, but really, immigration was his signature issue as a presidential candidate. He came out of the gate famously in his very first announcement speech at Trump Tower with that Mexicans are bringing rapists, they're criminals remark. And more recently, The New York Times has reported that privately he said that all Haitian immigrants coming to the U.S. have AIDS or that Nigerian immigrants need to go back to their huts. So when people have feelings about Donald Trump and so many uh, people do, you know, those feelings aren't very far when we're talking about immigration. So people are understandably riled up. Just a quick note about Rhode Island. Reading the story about the Cape made me ask, well, what's going on in my neck of the woods And turns out last February, Channel 12 reported that Providence Public Safety Commissioner Stephen Parry said that the city of Providence would not be participating in this program. And I found his quote interesting. He said, Local law enforcement should not be immigration officers nor an arm of ICE. We will not be involved in the investigation or enforcement of immigration laws. This requires comprehensive immigration reform and should not be the responsibility of local law enforcement. So I think these law enforcement officials on the Cape knew what they were getting into when they applied or even brought this into the conversation because certainly law enforcement officials in my neck of the woods steered very clear of this.
1: Well, I want to move on to the uh, next story, Arnie, in your neck of the woods, because, again, this involves police authority and a certainly a, a different take on an ongoing problem, and that's uh, the opioid epidemic that's going on. This oh. is um, the Berlin police chief in New Hampshire. Yeah. The Berlin, New Hampshire's daughter was arrested, charged with yeah. possession, possessing and selling heroin.
0: You know, so the reason I even was aware of that story is that my co-host is from that part of the woods, and she knows the Berlin police chief. And she said the police department in Berlin did everything right. They didn't let their police chief know this was done because they got a tip, they were able to do this. The police chief was then informed after she was arrested that she had been accused of dealing with an illegal drug and the substance and she was going to be going to jail and his only wish. And I think he was grateful to the cops that he worked with for not telling him, I don't want to know. You have to do your job. Even though it's a relation, I don't want to have a sort of a, a special set of situations for me versus what would happen to any other member of the community. And that I do hope that she gets some kind of a treatment when she's released. And let me just say something. Uh, New Hampshire is the seventh richest state in the nation. We also have, I think, the highest median income in the country. But we rank either, I think, at the bottom or the second from the bottom when it comes to treatment. And I understand the wish of the Berlin police chief. I have that wish, too, for everyone in New Hampshire. But unfortunately, we have the second or third highest opioid problem in this country. We have a real addiction problem. But we do nothing when it comes to prevention. And now it is hit home to the Berlin police chief. That's important in part because, one, he's respected, he's admired for his reaction, and it's just, just again going to highlight the fact that you have to get to this point and still you may not be able to get access to treatment. That's what's so horrific about this story. But I want to
1: praise the police
0: chief. He did everything right, and that's why he's a good chief.
1: That's my guest, Arnie Arneson of WNHN's The Attitude with Arnie Arneson. She is joined by freelance journalist Philip Isle and also Paul Pronovo of the Cape Cod Times. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Paul, weigh in on that because this is very much uh, hits you where you live down near the Cape. You've been struggling with this opioid epidemic for some time. And a change sure. in attitude uh, about it, Right by the absolutely.
2: way. The absolutely. Cape, the Cape has faced—I won't say that they've been on the tip of the spear of the opioid epidemic, but we've been reporting on it for a long time. I mean, the first time we did a three-part series was 2010, and certainly it's been going on before that. So I had a couple different reactions when reading the story, and, and the first one was—and this is a struggle we have as news people— My first reaction was, well, why are we singling out this poor woman who uh, is the daughter of the police chief simply because she's the daughter of the police chief? I thought, okay, what is making this compelling this to be more newsworthy than something else? But as I thought harder about it and read the story, clearly it needed to be. First of all, the fact that she was dealing drugs within her own community, which meant that the Berlin Police Department would have to investigate, created a whole wrinkle, because then you do have to cut out the police chief from the investigation. That's something that's highly unusual and pursue it as if it were anyone else, not the boss, mm-hmm. the boss's daughter, rather. Mm-hmm. Um, so so that really did compel it to a newsworthy element, so so I felt comfortable with that. And then, But then the next thing I thought, the chief himself in this story really was, I thought, extraordinary in how he laid his soul to bear about the situation, um, how it caught him off guard, how they were hoping for treatment. And, you know, those are the kinds of stories that I think help address the stigma because Drug addiction for a long time had, had a heavy stigma, like many things do. And so people really didn't want to talk about it, and they certainly didn't want to put their names behind it. When people of prominence, like this individual, come forward, tell their story, I think that helps others, uh, empowers others, really, to move their stories forward, move their situations
1: uh, you know, in a positive direction, and hopefully that's going to save lives. I mean, I think, uh, Philip, what we've seen is that when law enforcement are a part of the move to change the stigma, it really has a resonance. And I'm thinking about the police chief here in Massachusetts who was the first to say, bring the needles here. If you bring them and come to our place of business, we're not going to arrest you. We're going to try to find you some help. This was his response to the opioid epidemic, which, of course, got national attention so this, even though this is a very personal thing, hearing from this police chief, Philip, I think, has a very similar kind of impact, as Paula said.
4: Right. I mean, I think if there's any silver lining to the opiate epidemic, and I should say that the opiate epidemic is a tragedy, an ongoing tragedy of just staggering mm-hmm. proportions. The New York Times has called it a plague, and it's certainly been called an epidemic and an emergency. But if there is any kind of silver lining, it's that maybe, and I emphasize maybe we as a society will start to move in the direction of seeing this more as a problem that ought to be dealt with medically as opposed to, you know, punitively, criminally, et cetera. And I think when you see stories like this, as other folks have said in this conversation, it has the power, I think, to move that needle of public perception. And when I read this, I thought a couple things. You know, what a great advocate this police chief could become if he yes. if he were inspired to to be one of those people talking. I mean, he kind of says it in in his remarks when he says, I hope my whatever, you know, lies in the future for my daughter, there's treatment involved. So he could be a really powerful voice if he chose to. But I also think like anybody who studied the war on drugs at all needs to recognize and we need to talk about the fact of how this hasn't been the stance in the society for so long. We have been punishing people for what should be a medical issue. And it hasn't been done equally along racial lines. Oh, um, no, not at all. So I think we also need to talk about that. So it's kind of a better late than never, but it's also my reaction. You know, where was this in the 1980s when when crack was an issue? And, you know, we're still experiencing the after effects of that with mass incarceration and broken families and all this other stuff. So those are some of my thoughts.
1: No, and, and, and it should be noted that there is still a heavier weight of stigma on communities of color in the middle of this epidemic than there are, mm. but the, because this has been largely demographically situated in communities of, I, we do not even say middle-class white folks, but it's sort of lower-income, middle-class white people, it's gotten a different look than it might have and different voices in places that they might not have been speaking up before because well, the, they didn't and, relate. And the, just the addiction as a is now exercise, colorblind. Right, exactly right. There you go. You yeah. know,
4: just a, as a final thought, as a thought exercise, people in law enforcement might think with every single drug case they find... What if this were the Chief's son or daughter,, yeah. and can exactly. we proceed accordingly? Exactly. You know, how I might the story. system look different if we approached yeah. it that way?
1: Well, that'd be interesting all right, so moving on to you, Philip. We have had a many a conversation recently in the last few months about Rhode Island being on the up and up in terms <laughs> economically, all the jobs being brought there by the governor and much more attention nationally to Rhode Island and what it, what's happening there. And now here is this report where there's a couple that says the poverty rate in Rhode Island is the highest in New England. At one point, it was unemployment was the highest in the country, but now we're talking about the poverty yeah. rate. How can one thing be happening at the same time where we're having all of this great success in bringing jobs in?
4: Well, I don't know if I'm smart enough to offer... A thorough explanation of how these can both be happening at the same time except to say that they are and i didn't just bring bad news because i knew we were going to talk about these reports i do have a little bit of good news to follow up with but as you say kelly 2017 ended with the release of two pretty sobering reports about rhode island the first was the 2017 report on hunger in rhode island which came out from a local food bank which had some really stark facts as you said that rhode island has the highest rate of poverty in new england The report said 10 years since the start of the Great Recession, the state's economy is still not producing the type of jobs that can move families out of poverty. The prevalence of hunger in Rhode Island is the highest level in 10 years, it said. Over the last 10 years, participation in the national school lunch and school breakfast programs increased. The number of people on SNAP assistance has doubled since 2007. So that was one report. And then about a month later, Channel 12 picked up this report from Georgetown that found that Rhode Island has seen the biggest decline in good-paying blue-collar jobs in the country since 1991. And as my friend Ted Nisi noted in that article, and I'm quoting the Georgetown report, mirrors other research done in recent years, including a groundbreaking 2011 paper that showed that providence era workers faced more competition from the rise of China than workers in nearly any other U.S. region as of 1990. This was because Chinese factories began making the same types of product produced by manufacturers in Rhode Island. And I would assume he's talking at least in part about things like costume jewelry, which Mm -hmm. we used to be so famous for making. So I think the takeaway from these reports is while other states may be comfortable enough to talk about the Great Recession in past tense terms, I think we have some really strong tangible statistical indicators that, you know, this recession maybe never left or if it did – we're still feeling some serious effects in terms of the number of people experiencing hunger and food uncertainty and and just the number of people looking for a job. But I will say one more thing. At the end of the year, there were these two, at least two big news releases from the governor's office. The first that an India-based company named Infosys plans to open up an office with 500 jobs here in Providence over the next five years. And we also have a company called Virgin Pulse, which is a corporate wellness company that's opening up a new office in Rhode Island at some point, which supposedly will add 300 jobs. So I'm not sure these new jobs are necessarily the exact kind of blue-collar jobs that we lost so many of, but I guess my point is it's not all bad news from Rhode Island.
1: Well, and here's the other thing, Arnie. I wonder if um, is this Rhode Island an outlier in this way or no. is this a canary in the mine situation that we're somehow not paying attention to? So uh, this week I interviewed Harold Meyerson of The
0: American Prospect because he just reviewed a book. And listen to the title of the book. You're going to love this, Phil. Making It, Why Manufacturing Still Matters. And the author of this book has been studying this issue for 30 years and maybe 40 years. This is a story of America and not just a story of Rhode Island. Mm. Rhode Island might be the one that has experienced the most acute downfall in manufacturing since 1991. But you know the story has been an evolving story since the late 1960s, early 1970s. And what is so fascinating about this is that there are two countries in the world, just to give you an idea of where we are, there are two countries in the world that have seen a significant dip in manufacturing. You know what these two countries are? The United States and the UK. You know Mm -hmm. what they saw a rise of? In the financial sector. Isn't that? I want people to hear this, everyone. So as you look at this, all the money went where? It went into the financial sector. What got hurt the most? Manufacturing got hurt the most. And then they tell one more story that I think is also important for you to hear and for all of us to hear, is that when you think of one of the biggest manufacturers that came out of the most recent, you know, 20 or 30 years, it was really sort of Steve Jobs, But where did he create his jobs to make his new gadgets? 700,000 jobs were created where? In China. That's right. So I want people to put these stories together and say, what have we done that has not been able to embrace manufacturing? Where is our investment gone? Has it gone into R and D? Has it gone into manufacturing? Has it gone into the financial sector? And when you look at countries that still have a strong manufacturing base, they are two countries. They're Germany and believe it or not, Sweden. <laughs> so they and they don't have the same financial opportunities, quote-unquote, that we have, and yet what they've done is they're still making things, they're adding value, and they're creating jobs that have good pay. I think they're a real story. Rhode Island is a canary in the coal mine, but we're all Rhode Island today.
1: If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me are Arnie Arneson, you just heard her, Paul Pronovo, and Philip Isle, and we're talking about this week's regional news you may have missed. Paul, the center of this the bad news, anyway, not the, the, the little bit of good news at the end about the, the companies that are moving to Rhode Island, is about the wages. They're jobs, but they're not, quote-unquote, good jobs. This is something that I know is a big part of the conversation on the Cape. It
2: is. and Well, first of all, if, if you drive past any mill building, whether it's in Providence or Warwick or Fall River or New Bedford or Lawrence or Lowell or Manchester, are those mills humming? Uh, of course not. Those are the manufacturing jobs that are gone, and so areas, including the Cape, including Providence, have had to evolve over time. The Cape, for a while, tried to develop this thing called the "quote-unquote" Silicon Sandbar, where they attracted uh, high-tech jobs to the Cape, where you could have this great way of life, being you know near the beach, but also have companies come that would you know be high-tech and and you know white-collar jobs. It didn't work. Now. Can other things take place? Of course. I think, though, what has to happen, and we're starting to see the seeds of it in Providence, and we've talked about it in, in previous shows creative partnerships to get things going, having mm-hmm. uh, sort of incubators, and yes, having government take a leadership role that even involves putting skin in the game in terms of financial incentives. And that's how you develop these jobs. Otherwise, to answer your original question, Callie, the way you can have job growth and still poverty level is sadly the great chasm between increasingly this this elite high level of, of employment and this great big massive lower level of uh, employment underemployment, I mean, that's a statistic that I think doesn't get talked about nearly enough where people, maybe they have a job, but they don't have a full-time job. Too many companies are now pushing you into part-time job or per diem situations. So you have to string together one, two, three jobs to make ends meet. Those are the sort of things that are happening for us here on the Cape. It's also compounded by the notion that we're a seasonal economy. So you can be, you know, living the high life in July, but this time of the year, January, you're probably on unemployment.
1: Yeah, And if I can right. just add
4: yeah. one quick thing, this comes from the hunger report, not the jobs report, right. but it speaks to all of this. This is a quote. One third of the jobs created in Rhode Island last year have an annual average wage of just twenty six thousand five hundred twenty nine dollars. How far does that go in twenty eighteen if you're making twenty six thousand dollars a year? does go far. It speaks to Paul's point.
1: All right. Let me move to another money story in a very weird way. In New Hampshire, Arnie Arneson, the Republicans are close to taxing students to vote in New Hampshire. Now, let me just say before you weigh in on this, that just a couple of weeks ago, we mentioned that New Hampshire has the highest in-state tuition of anybody so my god going to college in new hampshire what is happening (laughs)
0: well you know if they're young they must be liberal come on come on and so this is kind of they don't call it a poll tax but ultimately it is a poll tax and what they're basically saying is, is in order for you to exercise the franchise you have to get a license here you have to register your car here you have to do all these things that have a huge sort of financial burden on young people and this is sort of a new invention usually all you have to do is basically say this is my residence here's the piece of paper. I'm paying this electric bill, and you know you're in. But when it comes to a student, this is going to be problematic for a couple of reasons. One, we get a lot of -of out-of-state students who decide for the time being that they're going to make this their residence for the four years they're here. But because they're still, quote-unquote, on paper, out-of-state students, what do they pay? They pay the high freight of an out-of-state student versus someone who was born in Berlin, New Hampshire. But while they're here, they are a resident of here, and they can vote here until and if they pass this bill that will require them to sort of basically come up with a couple of hundred dollars in order for them to be able to exercise the franchise. That is a real disincentive for a lot of young kids who are triaging their dollars to say, can I vote or do I have the $500 I need? And it's so clearly targeted. It really is sort of the, it's not a poll tax, but it is a poll tax. But here's the good news, folks. Rumor on the street is, despite the fact that the GOP loves this and hates young people and don't want them to participate in the voting process, we hear that Chris Sununu, our governor might in fact veto this bill. I don't know if that's true, but it'll be interesting because it appears that maybe what he's trying to do is sort of moderate his sort of image with young people, recognizing that this would not only be a way and an impediment for young people to vote, but it also might send the wrong message to a lot of very lucrative students that are paying for what we obviously cannot pay for, even though we have the highest tuition costs in the country, and that would be a a real sort of negative disincentive. So who knows? But again, This is all about barriers to voting. This is becoming more and more of the pattern. You know, that was the big fear about Alabama, and that's the big fear that you see in places like North Carolina and around the country. And New Hampshire, unfortunately, wants to embrace the same thing. And one of the reasons why they want the poll tax, just one more aside, the reason why it's really hard to do barriers to voting in New Hampshire is that we never complied with Motor Voter. We got Mm. an exception and what was that exception? Same-day registration, yep. which means even if you want to have a barrier, you can't, because guess what? If you can register to vote on the same day that you can vote, it's really hard to have a barrier. But if you have a poll tax, guess what? That is an effective barrier.
1: Well, if New Hampshire wants to be compared to Texas, where if you are a student, you, you cannot use your ID to vote. But if you have a gun license, you can. <laughs> then why don't you be in that company, New Hampshire? Not We're, we're uh, working on it. Yeah. OK. Go ahead, Paul.
2: I was only going to say that um, I lived in New Hampshire for four years as a college student. It didn't occur to me once to change my residency to New Hampshire. So, But I'm sure that it, some people are doing it. And it made me think, have they really run the numbers on this, how many I know. F- full-time students from out of state are in New Hampshire colleges? How many of them are registering now for a, a New Hampshire residency? In other words, how big are the numbers possibly that is swinging any voting thing? This this frankly sounds like based out of the hysterics that happened after last year's election. Um, we heard all about it that you know people were being bused from Massachusetts to vote in New Hampshire, and of course you know the election commission, in part, was launched because of stories out of New Hampshire and other places. That same election commission, as we all know, was disbanded last week because nothing came of it. So when you're targeting the college students, and it is a barrier for those who may not like me, who is slothful and didn't want to register, but others may have a good, legitimate reason to. (laughs) And and, and they might want to participate in that process because they're getting active in New Hampshire politics themselves. There are a lot of students in that category. And yet this is going to be a barrier for them. First in the nation.
1: Why wouldn't you want to be? I mean, it's crazy. I mean, you know, okay, we know where it's coming from, but that's a Mm. bad look, New Hampshire, just saying. Just to close it out here today, let's talk about criminals in Providence. They're getting caught in Providence on a show that is uh, headed up by Municipal Court Chief Judge Frank Caprio. Well, now it'll be a national show. He's about to go national. He's 81. And what he's been doing with the uh, night court there has gotten much attention. And he's going to be a big star. Apparently,
4: he already is. Apparently, <laughs> yeah. I, I, to be clear, <laughs> I'm not sure the the folks in who are featured on Caught in Providence are criminals per se. I most of the times Wrongdoers. I've seen, it, they're, they're de- dealing mostly <laughs> yeah. with minor traffic infractions, <laughs> which does not mean it isn't entertaining. For those people who haven't heard of it, i.e., for those people who aren't in Rhode Island, uh, for whom Caught in Providence hasn't been a local TV fixture all of your life, as it has for me, Caught in Providence, it's kind of like a real life Judge Judy situation in Providence Municipal Court. We've all been familiar with it for years on local access TV, but with the advent of the internet and social media, many of these clips have gone viral, apparently amassing, according to some of the numbers, tens of millions of views. And Hollywood has apparently taken notice, and late last year it was announced that this show, Caught in Providence, is going into syndication. (laughs) And uh, come fall of 2018, it will air in, and I'm quoting, New York, L.A., Chicago, Houston, Dallas, San Francisco, Washington, D.C., Phoenix, Orlando, Minneapolis, and Charlotte, North Carolina. And according to Caprio, quoted in that article, he says, over one billion people have had the opportunity to become familiar with the city of Providence in a light that's very favorable I attempt to administer justice in a compassionate, fair manner. And I should add, if you've seen any of these clips, he does it in a very entertaining and colorful manner with humor. And he's just a fun guy to watch. It's also interesting to note that the hit podcast, Crime Town, which aired a couple of years ago, which focused on Providence in its first season, was also recently picked up for production of a scripted TV show by the FX network. So apparently there's something in the air here in Providence uh, involving crime and and the justice system that... up. there's always
1: been something in the air. (laughs) good. what are you talking about? Well, that's true.
4: Yeah, this is odd news. That's, That's an excellent, fair point. I should say... The real news is even after the death of Buddy Cianci, there is still oh, something in the air. Right. Um, right.
1: and so We're going to leave tuned. it there. I thank you all for joining me on this very entertaining conversation at the end here. Paul Pronovo is the editor of the Cape Cod Times. Arnie Arneson is the host of WNHN's The Attitude with Arnie Arneson. And Philip Isle is a freelance journalist in Providence, Rhode Island. Coming up, he that lives to live forever never fears dying. That's poet William Penn's take on death and life. We all know that we will die, but as the scriptures say, we don't know the time or the hour. But what if you could? Author Chloe Benjamin explores that notion in her new book, The Immortalists. It's our January selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar book club. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley and now for the part of the show we call lanyap that's Creole for something extra Modern medicine has actually made it possible for people at risk for certain life-threatening conditions to know if they will develop the disease. Probably sooner than we are ready, scientists will be able to predict with some certainty when we will die. But even if you could know, would you want to know? Author Chloe Benjamin explores that question in her new novel, The Immortalists. The Immortalist is our January selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar book club. Author Chloe Benjamin joins me now from the studios of Wisconsin Public Radio in Madison, Wisconsin. Chloe, welcome to Under the Radar.
3: Thank you so much. It's such an honor to be here.
1: Well, I am thrilled to have you. I am always extremely biased when I interview my authors and no less so with you. I love the book, so let's just put that on the table. (laughs) Oh,
3: good. That's a relief. Oh, my goodness. It's
1: great. (laughs) So I want to give people a sense of it without any spoilers. The best I can say is that it involves siblings. It spans five decades, and at the start of the book, the siblings are 7 to 13 years old. But I wanted to give you an opportunity. How would you describe your book?
3: Well, I think you did a good job. My (laughs) nutshell is that it begins in 1969 on the Lower East Side, four siblings hear of the arrival of a mysterious woman who claims to be able to tell anyone the date that they will die. And the siblings go to this woman, they receive what she claims are their prophecies, and then the book follows each of them over the course of their lives. And it looks at the way that fate and chance and expectation shape our futures.
1: Well, let's hear a bit of it right away, because I think people will get drawn into it as they hear those first moments when the kids go to the fortune teller.
3: Sure. So in this moment, the children have just arrived at this apartment where the fortune teller is staying. Don't look around like that, Daniel hisses. Act like you belong. The golds hurry up the stairs. The walls are covered in chipped beige paint and the halls are dark. When they reach the fifth floor, Daniel pauses. "'What do you suggest we do now?' whispers Varya. She likes it when Daniel is stumped. "'We wait,' says Daniel, "'for someone to come out.' But Varya doesn't want to wait. She's jittery, filled with unexpected dread, and she starts down the hallway alone. She thought that magic would be detectable, but the doors on this floor look exactly the same with their scratched brass knobs and numbers. The four in number 54 has fallen sideways. When Varya walks toward the door, she hears the sound of a television or a radio, a baseball game. Assuming that a Rishika would not care about baseball, she steps back again. Her siblings have floated apart. Daniel stands near the stairwell with his hands in his pockets, watching the doors. Simon joins Varya at number 54, rises onto his tiptoes, and pushes the four back into place with his index finger. Clara has been wandering in the opposite direction, but now she comes to stand with them. She is followed by the scent of Breck Gold Formula, a product Clara bought with weeks of allowance. The rest of the family uses Prell, which comes in a plastic tube like toothpaste and squirts jelly the color of kelp. Though Varya scoffs outwardly, she would never spend so much on shampoo. She is envious of Clara, who smells like rosemary and oranges, and who now raises her hand to knock. What are you doing, whispers Daniel. That could be anyone. It could be... Yeah? The voice that comes from behind the door is low in pitch and gruff. We're here to see the woman, Clara tries. Silence. Varya holds her breath. There is a peephole in the door smaller than a pencil eraser. On the other side of the door, a throat is cleared. One at a time, the voice says. Varya catches Daniel's eye. They have not prepared to separate. But before they can negotiate, a bolt is pushed to one side, and Clara, what is she thinking, steps through.
1: So that's the beginning of The Immortalists, read by author Chloe Benjamin, and it uh, really just sucks you right in, I have to say, to the oh, stories of these, of these siblings and, and what happens to them after that uh, fateful meeting. So let me ask this question what in the world gave you the idea to do this story? It is unlike (laughs) any I've read. It's just unique in its way, which is what an author wants, of course. But it was just compelling in this so unusual way. (laughs)
3: Oh, I'm so glad. You know, I always say that I wish I had a good story about a fortune teller of my own, but it really just came out of my own neuroses. You know, anybody who knows me knows that I struggle with uncertainty and that I crave knowledge, but I'm also aware that knowledge can be a double-edged sword. You know, is it something that's liberating and it allows you to pursue your wildest dreams, or is it limiting, actually constricting you and your ability to live freely. So that question, when applied to the idea of mortality, was really compelling to me. So I think all of that was simmering in the background as I came up with the idea of these four siblings that go to visit a fortune teller, and then it took off from there.
1: Was this something that had been noodling around in your mind for a while, and you just needed sort of a story to tell Tell this to, to actually have people think about, well, what would you do if faced with this certain knowledge?
3: I think in some way, yes. It, I don't know that, that, that the precise question itself, kind of if you knew the date of your death, how would you live your life, was in the background for me. But I'm someone who is prone to anxiety and fears about loss. And so I think all those things are just always noodling around in my mind for better or worse. My mom has a quote unquote art piece that I made when I was very young that says, mom, is everything going to be okay in huge (laughs) letters with a pipe cleaner coming out of the center in a big coil. So (laughs) clearly I've always had a kind of focus on how to cope with the fact that we don't know what life has in store for us. Well,
1: one of the advantages you have, of course, you set it up this way, is that if you're following four different, very different people as these siblings, we learn them to be very, very different people in the book, you have an opportunity to go in so many different directions, and boy, do you. I, I remember thinking as I'm reading it, my goodness, what kind of research did you have to do to really bring forth each of their individual stories? And we should note that the book is divided into the individual stories of the four siblings, even though all of it overlaps at a certain point. Why did you decide to do that, approach the story in that way?
3: Yeah, you're exactly right. It took a ton of research. I tend to pick these really research-heavy projects, and I think there's this kind of idea to write what you know, and for me, I, I always have been more interested in writing what I want to know. But in order to do that with integrity, which is so important to me, I really dive deep. So, you know, Simon is a gay man who moves to San Francisco in the late 70s. Clara is a female magician. Daniel is a military doctor during the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. And Faryat is a scientist focusing on how to stop aging. So almost none of these things I had a background in. (laughs) And so, uh, you know, everything from watching documentaries, reading nonfiction, interviewing people who had lived through those times or experiences, looking at archival photos and video, trying to visit the places that were featured in the book on foot. It's really important to me to do justice to what I'm writing about.
1: I'm Callie Crossley, and you're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. My guest is Chloe Benjamin, author of The Immortalists. It's our January selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. There's nothing I love more than a family saga, and as you've laid out all of the siblings and their particular interests, one of the things that I particularly enjoyed was to watch them over time grow or not grow, as the case may be, but just really come into their own. And there's something quite satisfying about meeting someone when they're young and then watching them as they grow, tied together by this one incident early on in their lives. Do you think it's possible, as you explore in this book, to have an experience like that shape you for the rest of your life? I mean, this is fiction, but I wonder if you've seen that actually in the real world.
3: Hmm. Mm-hmm. I certainly think it's possible. I mean, I think that so much of what the book explores is not even necessarily whether the prophecies were true with positive certainty, but how thoughts can work within us, the power of thought and the stories we tell ourselves and how that influences reality, even if it might start out as a fiction. I think we're all so shaped by our childhoods and and the narratives that we are born into and create for ourselves. My examples would probably be all things that my therapist would have a field day with from, you know, my parents' divorce or a a parent's cancer, you know, diagnosis. But I certainly think that we carry these things with us in surprising and very long-term ways.
1: Now, what part do you think the interaction of the siblings played in telling the story? Even though you tell their stories very individually, they overlap, as I've said, and they take shape because of what's happening with the rest of them or not.
3: Yeah, I had one person once describe the book as being about the absence of family as much as the presence of family, and I found that so true. I think, you know, as so often happens in families, you feel incredibly connected in this very unique and intimate way to your siblings, and yet as adults, you might not know them very well. You might not know what kind of movies they like to watch or whether they read books or who their close friends are. So I wanted to explore this combination of intimacy and remoteness that can happen as you grow older, um, and how the bonds of family are still there, but how they work differently at different times in the siblings' lives. So
1: a good part of this has to do with belief and what what one may believe or not, and. There's also religion at the heart of it as well through Gertie, one of the characters that's the mother of all of these siblings. And I found that very interesting because you were very strong in expressing her faith in various ways all through the book. And it's an interesting contrast since the overarching premise of the book is if you knew when you would die, what how would you respond? And a lot of people would consider that a faith question. And I wondered if that's why Gertie is so strong as you have portrayed her in her faith, or it was just the way that you imagined her as a character.
3: Hmm. Well, I think that for me, faith is one way of coping with the unknown. And I think throughout the book, different characters have different ways of coping with that question, you know, the question of mystery in our lives and uncertainty and randomness. And one of the things that I wanted to explore was how belief systems like religion or magical thinking or a kind of fixation on science are more similar than they are different. As for Gertie, I think that she wants to be a believer more than she is a believer. And I can relate to that. My grandmother, with whom I'm really close, she has this great line that she said that all atheists are kind of envious atheists. Like, Hmm. oh man, it would bring comfort and solace to have that kind of faith. So I think she's one of those people who wants it and pushes herself in that direction, but does it more out of a craving for security than necessarily any true religious belief.
1: Let's take a listen from a passage from The Immortalist by Chloe Benjamin, and I'm speaking with Chloe Benjamin, to get a sense of Gertie. That's on page 121.
3: Gertie spent the days of repentance in a fog of misery. After Saul's death, she had said, not again. She could not once more bear the consequences of love. So she bid Simon goodbye before he could do it to her. I don't want you coming back. He hadn't, and now he never would. Three books are opened in heaven on Rosh Hashanah. Rabbi Chaim said on the first night of the High Holy Days. One for the wicked, one for the virtuous, and one for those in between. The wicked are inscribed in the Book of Death, the virtuous in the Book of Life, but the fate of the in-between is suspended until Yom Kippur. And let's be honest, he added, to smiles from the audience. That's most of us. Gertie could not smile. She knew she was wicked. All the prayer in the world would make no difference. But she must try, said Rabbi Haim, when she went to see him privately. His eyes were kindly through his spectacles, his beard bobbing peaceably. She thought of his family, his dutiful wife who rarely spoke, and his three healthy boys. And for seconds, she hated him. Another sin. Rabbi Haim put a hand on her shoulder. None of us are free from sin, Gertie, but God turns no one away.
1: And that, again, is Chloe Benjamin reading from her book The Immortalists. I really enjoyed the scenes where Gertie was, as you say, struggling now or just trying to contemplate what her faith meant to her at these various times during throughout the book. And she had plenty of time to consider it over the span of these decades. I found it very compelling and interesting. And I think even for people who really don't express interest in faith might find it to be compelling as well.
3: Well, I'm so glad to hear that. And I think we all are looking for ways to live in the face of the unknown and whether it's religious community or other forms of community there's a lot of support to be found there and so you know for myself I grew up with an episcopalian mother and a jewish father and so I had two religious strains, and I think my curiosity about religion, even if I'm not sure where I fall myself, was a driving factor in this book.
1: Hmm. So this is a book that the premise is about, you know, if you knew when you would die, but it seems to me that the essence of it is really about how do you live? What is life about? Is that the message that you're trying to give me?
3: I think that's the message. And and I wish that I knew. I mean, I think in writing this book, you see me searching for that. And there's sort of four case studies, possible ways of coping with this kind of knowledge. But I think that's what we're all looking for. I mean, there's no easy answer. I think that the answer that seems to be most prevalent and most powerful is to be present. You don't know how much time you have, but being present can be harder than it sounds, especially for those of us who have busy minds.
1: And it seems overly busy minds in some of these instances. (laughs) Yes, I think (laughs) that's probably true. I think it's fair to say that you don't like small questions. Your first novel, The Anatomy (laughs) of Dreams, is about, I read, the slippery nature of trust and the immense power of our dreams. I'm thinking, wow, this is not a plain romance (laughs) that you're dealing with. (laughs) How is it that the large life questions are ones that seem to come at you and need to find expression in your fiction writing
3: yeah it's true you know I think if it doesn't scare me it's not a big enough idea if it doesn't scare me it doesn't hold my interest over the amount of time that a novel takes I am not very good at short stories I'm really a long-form writer and so I sit with something for you know three to five years this book The Immortalist was about five years from conception to publication And so I think I need something really meaty to chew on it. That's also just where my mind goes. And that's not to say that beautiful, profound books haven't been written about more kind of micro rather than macro questions. And I think that there can be just as much wisdom that comes out of that way of exploring the world. But for me, I guess I'm I'm just hung up on the tough, unanswerable ones.
1: I think what makes your work work, at least for me in this book, is that it's a huge question, but it feels very accessible. Uh, So it feels as though, you know, somehow, I, I mean, I know it's overwhelming, but the way that you have presented it with the possibilities through these characters, makes you think about it, but at the same time, it feels accessible. I'm speaking with uh, Chloe Benjamin. She's my guest. This is the, she's the author of The Immortalist, and it's our January selection for Bookmark, the Under the Radar Book Club. And I'm Callie Crossley, and you're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. So I am curious, very curious about the kind of response you're getting The critics are going wild. Everybody's loving the book, which is good for you, calling it imaginative, satisfying, provocative, and thoughtfully executed. I would agree with all of that. But you know what I like to do when I do these book club segments is just check around and see what the real people are saying. (laughs) Please. So here's one. And I think you'll love this. I ran across this rave. This was on a blog, Girlfriends with Goals by Ada Ingram. She said it's the first novel she's read in seven years. But most importantly, she said she could not put it down and didn't want to. That's pretty high praise.
3: You know, I saw that. That was such a beautiful thing. And I felt so honored that I was able to to wrench her back to fiction. I know she said she usually reads nonfiction. And, and so I was like, all right, you know, we'll, we'll turn you back on to fiction. Yeah, it's a really interesting experience to get feedback. And although I think authors probably shouldn't read all of their reviews, I do. It's probably not a good idea. So I see the good and the critical and, you know, I, I take it all in. I think that it's important to know how readers are responding to my work and to try to use that to get better.
1: What's the overarching question that you're hearing from readers after they finish the book? What are they saying to you?
3: I guess what is most satisfying to me is that I'm finding people are really connecting emotionally with these characters despite how different they might be from them. And that really means a lot to me because I think we live in such a tense and difficult and fractured time in which People are not empathizing with others. And so if through my fiction I can present characters who speak to all kinds of different people, even if they don't have biographical similarities with those characters, I feel that that kind of exercise in compassion is all I can ask for.
1: Well, I would have to agree with that because, as I said, the characters are so unique into themselves that's what they're supposed to be i know somebody's listening saying of course that's what she's writing but i but so often and this is no you know, slam on other authors. You know, you've seen some of the characters before. I don't think people have seen these characters before. So it makes it especially interesting as they tackle this sort of large life question in the way that they do in their fictionalized lives. One of your characters that's particularly interesting and very far, I think, from most other people's experiences is Clara, who's a magician. I mean, You know, we just don't really know many magicians, professional magicians in our lives. You'll
3: have to speak for yourself. I have many magician friends. Okay. Well, I will say for
1: myself, I I don't know many. Um, And I was taken with not just your talking about her as a professional, but really about what she was hoping to experience with the audience. Let's take a little read from the book about Clara and Son, page 103.
3: Most adults claim not to believe in magic, but Clara knows better. Why else would anyone play at permanence, fall in love, have children, buy a house? In the face of all evidence, there's no such thing. The trick is not to convert them. The trick is to get them to admit it. I
1: found that to be quite profound in its oh, own way. Oh, I'm
3: so glad. I, You know, that this idea that magic is not deception but revelation exactly. was something that was so, as soon as I stumbled across it, I just thought that is the key to her character. And I attribute that to a book called Hiding the Elephant by Jim Steinmeier. If folks are interested in the magic in this book, Jim Steinmeier's book is fantastic. He takes you through a, a few hundred years of magical history, not only exploring Tricks, but also the rivalries between magicians and the big personalities at play. But one of the other things that he talks about is how magic does not take away from the real world for him, it adds to it. And that was something that I just instantly connected with. So, as much as Clara is kind of a very unusual character, I think that. The way that she looks at life is actually more similar to her father, who is very devoutly religious than it is to some of her other family members.
1: You know, somebody described your book as a family thriller. And I have to say that that also my heart was beating reading through some of the novel, wondering what's going to happen next. And I did have a few gasps of, oh, really? when certain things happen, you know, I'm trying desperately not to give away a thing because I want people to you'll
3: have to tell me off (laughs) off the show. Exactly. I don't want
1: people to, to do that. But here's the question I have for you as we come to conclude our conversation here. How do you feel about if destiny is reality or if we have choices about the way that we may or may not be able to shape it? just curious about you now after having written it, after having uh, experienced the response from people and gotten the rest of us talking about what we would do if we were in a similar situation.
3: I kind of see that question as connected to the idea of this woman, the fortune teller and her prophecies and whether they're real. And I don't know myself. And I feel that I couldn't have written the book with a kind of curiosity and openness if I answered that question for myself. And in the same way, I mean, gosh, I wish I knew. I wish I could tell you. Um, I think that it's in the interplay for me. It's always a both and. And I think that that's ultimately the, the heart of the book is the way that our expectations and our thoughts interact with reality. So, you know, destiny and choice, the only answer for me is probably one in which they're hopelessly intertwined.
1: I hear that the book has been optioned for a TV series or a movie. Is that right?
3: It has. Yes. The Jackal Group, which is led by Gail Berman, is developing it for cable. So hopefully we'll have some news about that uh, not too far into the new year.
1: And I always ask, no one ever answers, but I have to ask, what are you working on next?
3: Oh, I know. I'm going to be another one of those people. But see, listen, I'm way too superstitious. Do you really think I would talk about my next book? Well, I
1: always ask for a hint.
3: I'm working on it. Oh, gosh, what's a good hint? Well, since we know
1: you do the big questions, i am kept yep. trying to imagine what it's going to be. You know?
3: Oh, gosh. This is a big hint. I haven't, I've never given this much before. I'll say it has to do with women and politics.
1: Ooh. Okay. I'm looking forward to that, uh, Chloe Benjamin, because I have to tell you, The Immortalist is a delight. Very oh, thought-provoking, you. very well-written, compelling story. You did it, and you were awarded... Properly, for your first effort, The Anatomy of Dreams won the Edna Ferber Fiction Book Award, long listed for the 2014 Center for Fiction First Novel Prize. That was your first book, I expect. Others will find this, and you will be richly rewarded for this one as well.
3: Oh, thank you so much, Kelly. This was just an absolute treat. Um, I'm so grateful.
1: Chloe Benjamin is the author of The Immortalists. It's her second novel. It's our January selection for Bookmark, the Under the Radar Book Club. The book is available in bookstores and online on Tuesday, January 9th, and she'll be appearing at the Harvard Bookstore in Cambridge on Tuesday, January 23rd. Well, that's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show, links to stories we discussed today, and bonus content on the web at news.wgbh.org UTR. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Be sure to connect with us on social media. Follow me on Twitter at Callie Crossley and like us at Facebook.com slash Under the Radar WGBH. Our engineer is Doug Sugertz. Andrea Swahi is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH.